Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter. This is Pretty Good Bible Studies, and I am on John chapter 11, verses 28 through 44, continuing the story of Lazarus's resurrection by Jesus. We covered the first part of that story in verses 1 through 27 in the previous audio. This is during Jesus's Perean ministry, right before he takes a roundabout passage to go back to Jerusalem in order to experience Passion Week. So this has occurred somewhere between the last Feast of Tabernacles, which is described in John chapter 7, I think it is, previous chapter, and we've talked about all the things that happened around the Feast of Tabernacles, and then the story jumps forward to the Feast of Dedication, where Jesus tells the Jewish leaders that he and the Father are one, and they try to stone him. And so now we're somewhere past that Feast of Dedication, which is in December, and of course it's before the last Passover, which is in March, April. So somewhere in that three-month period is where we are, and Jesus is at Bethany at the house, no, excuse me, not Jesus, the story is set at Bethany in the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Jesus' three good friends who live there, and at whose house Jesus constantly re- retreated to in the course of his ministry, especially when he was in Jerusalem, because he was trying to get away from the Jews who lived in Jerusalem, so he'd go outside of the town to Bethany, which was two miles to the east. So that's where we are. We'll start in John 11, verse 28 through 31. Having said this, she, that's Martha, went back and called her sister Mary. I need to pick up the context here. Having said this, having said what? We'll go back to verse 27. She had run out to meet Jesus outside the city as Jesus was coming back in. Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. So she had just made a very strong declaration of faith. This was after Jesus had asked her in verse 26, Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die ever. Do you believe this? And she said, Yes, Lord, I believe. So this was a big big, big statement of faith that Martha has made. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. As soon as she, Mary, heard this, she, Mary, got up quickly and went to him. Again, outside the house, outside the village, somewhere, outside that little village where Jesus was. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Martha, you recall, had gone out earlier when she heard that Jesus was on the way, and she went out to meet him, but Mary had stayed in the house, seated in the house. Verse 31, the Jews who were with her in the house, that's the Jews who were with Mary in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. So they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. All right, first of all, why did Martha talk, tell Mary in private that the teacher, the rabbi, is here and calling for you? Well, because, she, according to John Gill, she didn't want Jesus' enemies to know he was in the area. Talking outside was much safer, was much safer than talking in the house. And that's probably true because... Jesus is a wanted man by now. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows the Jews are after him. And they're Jews coming to mourn Lazarus' death. And if Mary and Martha were somewhat prominent, it could be big shot Jews were out there mourning Lazarus' death. And Martha was being careful. So she told Mary in private, come out here. Jesus is waiting for you. Now, notice that Mary called Jesus rabbi. Now, the NIV study Bible says this is significant. I don't believe this is significant at all, but they do. The study Bible says it was significant that Jesus was called rabbi by a woman because rabbis didn't teach women. Well, that's true. Rabbis didn't teach women, but that 
does not mean that women didn't call teachers rabbis. If Jesus had taught nothing but men, it would not be a strange thing to hear a woman call Jesus rabbi because he's teaching men, and that's his common title. So they're just trying to make a point. I'm sure the feminist evangelicals got on their case and said, you need to say something about this to prove that you're not a male chauvinist pig. Well, obviously, and we don't need that anyway to prove that Jesus did teach women. We just had this, we know the story of Mary and Martha, the famous story where Mary was doing the greater thing instead of fixing the dishes, fixing the feet, food, she was at Jesus' feet learning from him. And you can also think about all those women who helped finance the ministry of the disciples. I can't believe they just gave him money but didn't sit around and listen to Jesus as he taught the disciples. I can't believe that for a minute. So yeah, Jesus taught women. You know that verse in 1 Timothy 2.12 that says that women should not teach or exercise authority over men? That doesn't say, that verse does not say that women can't be taught by men. It says that they can't teach men, but it doesn't say anything about not being taught by men. I teach women all the time, by the way. Usually Chinese women who get saved. The Chinese men, of course, are too busy watching NBA basketball to really be that concerned about spiritual things. But a lot of the women are, and I teach them, and, I don't, and of course there's nothing wrong with that, and it's a good thing to do. So anyway, I just passed that by because I couldn't help but notice that remark in the NIV Study Bible. Now let's talk about the word cry. The mourners, the Jewish mourners who were there, saw Mary get up. She leaves. They think she's going to the tomb, and they think she's going to the tomb to cry there. Now the NIV translates that as mourn. I've got the Holman Christian Study Bible. She was going there to mourn there. This is wailing. This is what the Greek word means. It means to wail, beat your breast, and cry your eyes out, sob, moan, in despair. Wailing in a tomb was common, according to the NIV Study Bible, so the comforters naturally assumed this was Mary, what Mary was going to do. She was going to the tomb to wail and weep and beat her breast, and so the mourners went out there to help her mourn. Now, I question whether these are the professional mourners or whether these people who really are concerned about Mary as a human being who's lost a brother, I don't know. But at any rate, the fact that they followed Mary out of that tomb, well, actually, Mary wasn't going to the tomb, she was going to see Jesus, but the, the mourners there, the Jewish mourners there, they thought that she was going to the tomb, and that's where they ultimately went. And this was providential because it gave Jesus maximum publicity for the miracle he was about to do. There were witnesses everywhere, and they could not deny what he had done. Now, the fact that Mary went out to see Jesus actually broke a rule of the rabbis, according to John Gill. The rule was is that mourners were not to leave the house during the first week of mourning. Well, Martha and Mary both have broken that rule, but, you, you know, who cares? Your brother's dead. Jesus is there. Who cares about stupid, legalistic, pharisaical traditions? We go to verse 32. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Well, this is the same thing that Mary had said when Mary had gone out to Jesus. In verse 21, she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same thing. And you know they were probably telling themselves that all the time. Why did he wait two days? You know, if you recall from the first part of the chapter, Jesus, upon hearing of Lazarus' sickness, waited two days, which ensured that Lazarus would die. And so I, there might be a little bit of a chastisement here. Lord, why in the world did you wait for two days? Why didn't you come? If you'd have just been here, my brother would have died. Now, Mary and Martha were close to Jesus. That might have given them just a little bit of leeway so they could unburden themselves and be just a little bit critical, you know? You might do that to somebody you really know 
uh, but but you wouldn't do that to somebody you don't know very well. So maybe that's why she did it. But I, I can't help but believe that she was being a little bit critical here. And of course, Jesus knew what he was doing. He delayed so that the miracle would be bigger. Now, there is the possibility that there's no criticism in this phrase at all. At all, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She might have just stated it as a matter of fact. I mean, after all, she was weeping, so she's not necessarily criticizing Jesus. She could have just said, oh, God, if you, Jesus, if you'd have just been here, my brother would not have died. So it's hard to say exactly what her attitude was. John 11, verses 33 and 34. When Jesus saw her crying, and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Now that first crying there, when when Jesus saw her crying, the NIV has that when Jesus saw her weeping. And this is the strong version of crying. As the NIV study Bible says, the Greek word denotes a loud expression of grief. Wailing, moaning, sobbing, not just crying softly. So everybody's all in an emotional uproar here. Now notice that the Jews who came with Mary, they thought she was going to the tomb, but she didn't go to the tomb. She went to Jesus, and the Jews followed her, and they were there with Mary, crying with Mary, too. So there was a big emotional uproar going on. Everything, everybody's nerves were frayed, and their emotions were shot, and then Jesus gets angry. Now, this is an amazing thing. The Son of God got angry. The NIV translates that as troubled. I like the Holman Christian Study Bible's translation of angry. Let's look at some other times Jesus was angry or that his soul was troubled. John 12:27. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But this is why I came to this hour. Uh, yeah, I think troubled is a better translation than angry. In that case, he's, worried about, he's concerned about his impending crucifixion. John 13, 21. Jesus has said this. He was troubled in his spirit and testified. I assure you, one of you will betray me. That's at the Last Supper. I don't know if that's at the Last Supper, but he's talking about Judas betraying him, and he was troubled in his spirit. So we see Jesus' emotions. Is that angry or troubled? Mark 3, 5, after looking at them with anger, here the Holman Christian Study Bible translates it as anger. After looking around at them with anger and sorrow at the hardness of their hearts, he told the man, stretch out your hands. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. He was angry at the Pharisees who were mad at him for doing a healing on, on, the, on the Sabbath. I believe this was in the Capernaum at the synagogue at Capernaum on, on the Sabbath. And he got angry at the Pharisees. And in just a few verses, we're going to see Jesus getting angry again about Lazarus being in the tomb, John eleven thirty eight. Then Jesus, angry in himself again, came to the tomb. So, the Holman Christian Study Bible margin talks about that Greek word. It says the Greek word is very strong and probably indicates Jesus' anger against sin's tyranny and death. So, you know, if, it, if, it, if the word is so strong, troubled is not strong to me. My soul is angry. Why should I say, Father, save me from this hour? My soul is angry. When Jesus had said this, he was angry in his spirit and testified, one of you will betray me. So either it's very, very troubled and upset or very, very angry. I'm not exactly sure what the Greek word is. I, I haven't studied it, actually. But at any rate, Jesus' is, Jesus's emotions are churned up. And, and this shows that Jesus is fully man, just like we are. He was a full. He was completely human, and humans have emotions. Now, what was he angry at? The Holman Christian Study Bible said against sin's tyranny and death. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that his anger was righteous indignation at their unreasonable beliefs. In other words, the fact that they don't believe in God. I think that what he was angry at was his friend Lazarus was in the grave, and that death had temporarily conquered him. Jesus hated death 
He got mad about it, got angry about it. Now, I mentioned that Mary, as she approached Jesus, was crying, and that the Jews who had come with Mary were crying. That same, those two cryings there, Mary's crying and the, and the Jews, mourning Jews crying, was the wailing, the extreme form of crying, not crying, weep, not, not crying quietly to yourself. This is by contrast with the crying that Jesus did in verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, when the verse says Jesus wept. That is a soft crying, kind of crying to yourself. Different Greek word there. But now the next question is, is was this crying sincere or was it formalistic? As mourners did back then, you, you pay a mourner and they cry at your wedding just for the effect, which I've always thought was a strange custom. Or were they crying in genuine sympathy for Mary because her brother had died. Gill and Clark think so. I think so too, probably. I think it was not professional mourners. Although we can't be sure, there's been another suggestion that maybe people were crying because of sin and its consequences in general. I don't think that's true. People don't cry about death in general when they're around somebody who's died. They're crying because that particular person has died. They're not very philosophical at a time like that, if you ask me. Now, as I said, Jesus was fully human when he saw those tears. He was moved at the sight of a woman's tears. Mary's. He was also moved at the sight of a friend's tears because, as the scripture says, he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He loved them. So he had a, a woman that's crying, and that's always hard for a man to watch a woman cry like that. And then, when it's, especially when she's your friend, it's pretty tough. No wonder he was moved. No wonder he was upset at what had happened. Now, Jesus asked in verse 34, Where have you put him? Now, the question arises is, did Jesus, why did Jesus ask that question? There's some options here. One option is, is that Jesus knew exactly where the tomb was because he was God. This is John Gill's idea. But he asked anyway because he wanted to show that there was no collusion between himself and Lazarus' relatives. In other words, Jesus says, I know where the tomb is. And the reason he knew is because his rel Lazarus' relatives had told him where the tomb was. And Jesus was going there. And Lazarus was lying in the tomb alive as he could be. And Jesus was going to do a fake miracle and get him out. But by showing that he had no idea where the tomb was, that shows that he had no collusion with Lazarus' family and that this was going to be a true miracle. Well, I don't know about that. John Gill always assumes that, almost always assumes that Jesus does everything supernaturally. And in my opinion, he denigrates the idea that Jesus is fully human and had sometimes had to ask for directions sometimes, just like we do. I mean, Jesus, the other option is when Jesus asked this question, he generally wanted to know where the tomb was. He was a human being. He didn't know where the tomb was. He wanted to know. But I will say as a side effect, it did show that he was not in collusion with Lazarus' relatives because if he was, to, if he was trying to be in collusion with them so he could work a fake miracle with Lazarus, he would know where the tomb was and he wouldn't need to ask. Well, this, this helps prove that he was, in, he was doing an independently verifiable miracle. John 11, verse 35 through 37, verse 35, Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. We all, if we grew up in Sunday school, we know that verse, Jesus wept. But again, let's think about it a little deeper than that. Why was he weeping? Because his good friend was dead. If you ever worried about, thought about that verse, oh, death, where's your sting? And I, I would read that verse, and I'd think, well, if that verse is true, why does everybody cry at weddings? Well, Jesus cried at, not at wedding, excuse me. <laughs> why did they always cry at funerals? Well, Jesus cried at Lazarus' mourning period, which was basically a funeral. Jesus cried. 
I think the answer to that is when Paul says, oh, death, where is that sting? It's in the context of 1 Corinthians 15. That whole chapter is about the resurrection of the dead. But what he's saying is death has lost its sting at the time, at the end of the world, when everybody's resurrected again. But we're not there yet at a funeral, and that's why we cry, because it's a terrible thing to lose a loved one. But anyway, Jesus cried just like we do when somebody we love dies. And the Jews were affected by that, verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Oh, it's quite remarkable. He must have really been close to Lazarus. But now we've got some naysayers, verse 37. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? Now, these naysayers, I call them, they were referring to Jesus' healing that fall at the last, near the time of the last Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus' last Feast of the Tabernacles. Near that time, Jesus passed a blind man who was born blind from birth. Jesus spit into the dust of the ground, made some mud, rubbed it on his eyes, told him to go wash at the pool of Siloam, and the blind man did that, and he got his eyesight back. And this miracle, the, the report of it, was all over Jerusalem. The, the Jewish Pharisees got all upset. Everybody knew about it. And so when they said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes, they were just talking about common knowledge. He did that. Well, why couldn't he keep Lazarus from dying? Well, the answer to that is, yeah, he could have. But he didn't so that God's glory would be greater when he raised him from the dead. Now we have a question here is exactly how do these people say this? Did they have that same questioning attitude that Martha and Mary had? Remember, in verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Verse 32, when Mary came to see where Jesus was, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They were just questioning, and they were just expressing grief. Maybe an implicit hit, but they certainly weren't being malicious about it, and that could be what these, this party of people, some of them said, couldn't he have opened the blind man's eyes, also have kept this man from dying? Which is the same thing that Mary and Martha had said, Lord, if you'd have just been here, you could have kept Lazarus from dying. It could be that, but there's another option. Adam Clark says this, maybe these were malicious Jews who saw Jesus' crying as a sign of weakness. So we would read it this way. Look at this guy. Look at this guy. He, he, he opened a blind man's eyes, but now he, he, he can't come heal a sick man. Maybe he's not the Messiah after all. Maybe he's just a phony miracle worker. Well, that could be. Clark could be right. I don't know. But at any rate, Jesus either implicitly a little bit or openly with malice is being accused of not being able to do a miracle. Well, that ain't going to last long because he's getting ready to do one of the biggest miracles of all, resurrecting a man who had been dead four days in his tomb. Let me go back to Jesus wept, the shortest verse in the Bible. We see another time when Jesus wept. This is as he approached and saw the city. This is during Passion Week. He wept over it. He wept over Jerusalem because he knew what was going to happen in AD 70. The city was going to be destroyed in its unrepentance, and that made him weep. So we see Jesus' emotions. We don't see his emotions a lot, but every now and then we do, and that was one one time. Why was he crying here? It was obviously he was crying because of Lazarus's death. John Gill adds this speculation that maybe he was showing anger and indignation at the malice and wickedness of the Jews. Maybe. I don't know. We go now to John 11, verses 38 through 40. Then Jesus, angry in himself again, came to the tomb. Jesus is still angry. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, he's already decaying. It's been four days. Jesus said to her, Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? All right, let's look at that word angry again. 
I've already mentioned four or five places, about four places in the scripture where Jesus said he was angry. The NIV has deeply moved. The, NIV, the Holman Christian Study Bible has anger here, but the first time they have troubled, excuse me, they have angry in verse 33 and verse 37. The NIV has troubled. It's a word that shows great emotion, whether it's tr- being troubled or being angry, I guess, is a, is a matter of language, a matter of translation. But the point is, he was still he was still emotional about the fact that Lazarus was in that grave. Now, why did Martha say, Lord, he's already the king. It's been four days after Jesus had removed the stone. She obviously had second thoughts about Jesus removing the stone because everybody would see her dead, decaying brother in there, not to mention the fact he was going to smell. He's already the king, she said. The King James says he stinketh. The NIV has, there is a bad odor. So the reason Mary Martha might have hesitated when Jesus said remove the stone is because of this. She didn't want the public to see her brother in, degraded sta- in a degraded state. That's what John Gill says. And that fear of the public seeing her brother temporarily overcame her desire to see Lazarus resurrected. If indeed she did think that Jesus could do the resurrection, now that's another question. It could be that Mary thought that Jesus was saying remove the stone so that Jesus could go in there to have one last look at his departed friend Lazarus. I don't think so. That's John Gill's idea. But Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that she probably had a glimmering of hope for a resurrection. And I think that's right. And the reason I say this is because if we go back to the context in verses 22 through 27, let me read that to you. And you can see that Martha probably believes that Jesus is going to resurrect Lazarus. Verse 22, yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. See there? She's saying, hey, I think you can, I know he's died, but hey, whatever you ask, including, the implication is, including uh, asking God to raise somebody from the dead. And Jesus seems to go along with that idea because in verse 23 he says, your brother will rise again. And then the discussion of the resurrection at the end of the world and so forth follows that. So, I believe she had, she thought that Jesus, when Jesus had removed that stone, she probably thought he could raise him from the dead. But that belief, which might not have been extremely strong because she was a human being, of course, and raising people from the dead is a big miracle. She might have suppressed that thought for the idea of, oh my gosh, I don't want my dead stinking brother out here where everybody can see him. And then she said it's been four days. Now the four days could refer to the fact that's why he stunk. That's why his body had decayed because it's been four days. No point in raising somebody from the dead after four days. It's too late. It's hopeless. Remember the Jews thought that after three days the departed, the, 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 the spirit of the dead person hung around the body for three days and then left to go to wherever it went. And she's saying, hey, it's been four days. The body is stinking. And she, I'm sure she's saying it's too late. You didn't get here in time, and you're not going to resurrect him again. But maybe you will. Again, I still think she might have, you know, she might have had in the back of her mind that Jesus might could do this. But on the other hand, the circumstances are not too favorable. Now, isn't that the way we always are? Whenever we pray for something, don't, the circumstances always look bad. You get a real bad sickness, don't, don't, don't things look bad? You're in a bad financial situation, don't things look bad? You got somebody that hates your guts at work, don't you think things look bad? They always look bad. But you still have hope. You still have faith in, deep in your heart. So I suspect that's what Martha was thinking. Things are looking bad here. I don't know if we want to open the, the, the grave up here, but I, I, I really think maybe you can do something. And Jesus builds her faith in verse 40. He says to her, Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? He's tr- belief is the same word as faith. Didn't I tell you that if you had faith, you would see the glory of God? In other words, hey, Mary, 
I'm encouraging, Martha, excuse me, I'm encouraging you to believe. Now, when did Jesus tell Martha that she would see the glory of God? Well, he didn't tell her exactly in those words that he would see the glory of God, but he did tell her that her brother would rise again. John 11 to 23, your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Verses 25 through 26 of John 11. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And Martha said she did. So Jesus is referring back to that little talk he had with her upon meeting her outside of Bethany. He said, look, you said you believed. You said that if you believed in me, and I said if you believed in me, that you would have everlasting life and you would never die. Didn't I tell you that? So this is what Jesus is referring to in verse 40. Didn't I tell you that if you believed, just you would see the glory of God? He, so what Jesus is doing here is equating the resurrection of the body with the glory of God. Because in verse 25, he said, The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. That means he'll be resurrected. Everyone who lives by being resurrected and believes in me will never die, ever. Do you believe this? So he's already talked to her about resurrection. He's asked Martha to believe him. And now he's referring back to her previous statement of belief. Did, didn't I already tell you this? And what he's doing is he's equating God's glorification with resurrection of the dead. Because in verse 4 he said, This sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it by Lazarus dying and being resurrected. So resurrection of the dead is glory there. And so when Jesus says in verse 40, didn't I tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God, what he's saying is, didn't I tell you if, if you believed you would see the resurrection of Lazarus? He's equating resurrection and glory of God there. We go now to verses 40 through 42. So they remove the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so they may believe you sent me. Jesus raised his eyes. That's how he was praying. I don't know. You know, a lot of times people in the in the West, at least, we bow our heads to pray. Jesus raised his eyes and looked to heaven. There's different ways you can pray. There's no standard format, if you will. He raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. Now, he didn't have to say that because he said, look, I, I know that you always hear me, but I'm saying this for the crowd. Jesus is always concerned about his public witness. And he says, I'm saying this so that the crowd there might believe that you sent me. Well, why would they might believe that the Father sent him? Well, if Jesus just raised Lazarus from the dead without praying to the Father, people might have thought the devil gave him the power to do it. Or they might have thought it was a trick, some kind of, some kind of conspiracy with Lazarus' family or something. But Jesus makes it very clear. He wants to hook up this miracle with God the Father. And that's why he publicly prayed very loud. I know that you hear me, God the Father. This reminds me of a great story. I was in a class with John Gerstner at my seminary at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and Gerstner was a cessationist, and he kept talking about how miracles don't exist today. Well, it just so happened that there was a man in the Trinity Seminary cafeteria over there who had got a bar, he was a young guy, he got a barbed wire hooked into his eyeball, and it pulled his eye out, and he was blind. And God restored his sight so that he could see through the eye socket where there was no eyeball. Well, that's a first-rate miracle. He was written up in Christianity Today, and somebody, I don't know who, at the seminary invited him to the seminary. And I wish I could have been there to hear the guy, but I had this class with the cessationist, John Gerstin. And John Gerstin was one of America's greatest Calvinist theologians at the time, and he was a bulldog. Everybody knew he didn't take any prisoners. When he got, you got in a theological argument with him, you better come loaded for bear because he'd nail your hide to the wall. 
I didn't know that at the time. I knew it after that class because he started talking about how miracles don't exist. And I innocently raised my hand. I said, well, then how do you explain this guy over there in the cafeteria who can see through an eyeball, an empty socket with no eyeball? And Gerstner looks at me and he says, how do you know it wasn't from the devil? How do you know it was true? How do you know? Well, first of all, he said, how do I know it's true? I said, well, I don't know. A lot of people think it's true. They got a, 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 a handkerchief over his good eye. And he's reading with the, the the bad eye, the empty eye socket. And these are seminary students, and you know they might be able to tell whether there's fraud going on or not. Well, after well that, so that didn't satisfy him. So then he says, "Well, how do I know that the miracle wasn't from the devil?" And by this time, he's standing in front of me. His glasses are falling down on his nose. A sweat is beating off his face, and he's b- basically berating me, browbeating me, and. The class was dead silent, and I stood there, and I listened to him rant and rave, and I looked at him, and I said, I said, well, how do you know? You say this miracle over here in the cafeteria might be from the devil. How do you know that the miracles in the New Testament were from the devil? And I said, it's because of the prayers that people were making. They were praying to God. They weren't praying from the devil. So from the circumstances, facts and circumstances of the case, you could tell that the miracle was not from the devil. It was from God. Well, he didn't like that. So finally, I told him he had mentioned earlier some woman had come to his church seeking healing, and he wouldn't pray for her because he was a cessationist. And he says, and when she wasn't healed, she went and came a Christian scientist. So I pulled out my, my nuclear bomb, and I said, well, Dr. Gerson, I said, have you ever thought that if you prayed for that woman and she'd been healed, that she might not be a Christian scientist and might not be going to hell today? Ooh, was he upset. He stopped berating me. He looked like he'd been hit in the head with a two-by-four. He turns his back to me. He had already walked down the aisle. I was halfway in the middle of the class. He had walked down to, the, to me and had his face about three inches in front of me yelling at me. He got quiet. He turned around, walked back to his lectern, and picked up with his notes like nothing had happened. He just found a, a random place in his notes and started reading. It was something about predestination, I remember. <laughs> I've never seen anything like that. It's amazing to me what cessationists will do to avoid credible testimony that miracles are taking place. It's just amazing. Well, one thing I think that charismatics don't do is they don't go to the detail, to the effort that Jesus did to prove that miracles had occurred. And here Jesus, in the midst of his concern for his dead friend Lazarus, he was making sure that the people knew that this miracle was from God and not from the devil. Witnesses, folks, witnesses, credible witnesses, that's what you do. You make everything public, you don't do it privately. You make the miracle public so everybody can see it and nobody can deny it. I wish charismatics would learn that. Now one more point before we move on. Jesus, when he raised his eyes and prayed to God the Father, he said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. Heard me when? Heard me praying what? Well, I think that you've heard me about the resurrection of Lazarus. Well, that can't be because the resurrection hadn't been done yet, so that can't be it. Could it be everything that Jesus had prayed about before to the Father? I thank God that you have heard me about all the times I've prayed to you. And Jesus was constantly praying to the Father. You know, he'd stay up all night on a mountainside to do that. Did it before he chose the 12 apostles, as a matter of fact. Well, it could be referring to all the answered prayers, all the prayers that he'd given to the Father in general in the past. But I think, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say, that it was the prayer for Lazarus. Jesus probably made this prayer when he received the message of Lazarus' sickness. When Martha had sent the message out that that Jesus was that, excuse me that Lazarus was sick, Jesus probably immediately prayed for him. Mary and Martha sent that message. I mean, that's speculation. We don't know. But at any rate, it's a minor point. 
Jesus says praise to the Father, and he thanks. And this is a good example to us. When God answers a prayer, we need to thank him for it. In thank, what does Paul say? In everything, give thanks, making your petitions known to God. I forgot the verse exactly, but the idea is when you pray, you start out by thanking God for all the times he's answered your prayer. And this is what Jesus did. He said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. Thank you. At any rate, Jesus was doing this miracle not just because he loved Lazarus, because he wanted a great miracle to make people believe in him. I said this so that they may believe you sent me, he says in verse 42. We go to verse 43 and 44. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. First question, why did he shout with such a loud voice, Lazarus, come out? Some people say it's cause so Lazarus could hear. After all, he's in a tomb, in a rock cave. Yeah, maybe. John Gill denies that and says rather that it's, he, he cried out with a loud voice so that all around could hear his power and majesty. Could be both, actually. I don't know, but it's, you know, he, Jesus let everybody know, I'm about to do a miracle here. I'm about to raise somebody from the dead. So he did it with a loud voice. Dead man came out bound. Lazarus came out bound, hand and foot. First question is, is how did he come out if he was bound? Well, now this is interesting. John Gill, who, as I said earlier, he always says that things are miracles when they're not necessary. And what he's saying is, if if Lazarus' feet were wrapped together, his legs were wrapped together with those linen cloths, it would have to be a miracle that the cloths would have to be split. So. Lazarus could get out of there. I don't believe that for a minute. Neither does Adam Clark. He says, rather, each leg was wrapped individually. Here's his quote. But some will have it that he was swathed exactly like a mummy and that his coming out in that state was another miracle. But there is no need of multiplying miracles in this case. There was one wrought which was a most sovereign proof of his unlimited power and goodness of God. In other words, my gosh, he just did a miracle raising somebody from the dead, and we got to say he did another miracle to get Lazarus' feet unbound. I don't think so. His legs were just bound separately. That's the simplest answer there. Why was there a cloth? Why was his face wrapped in a cloth? John Gill says, to hide the grim and ghastly looks of the corpse. Well, I'm sure... That that cloth was no longer necessary because I'm sure that even though Lazarus had decayed, that by the time Jesus finished with that resurrection, his body had been reconstituted to the original state that it was in before he got sick and died. Why was he wrapped in linen strips? So that the aromatic spices that, that Jews prepared corpses with might be kept in contact with the flesh. That's what Adam Clark says. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I have finished with John chapter 11, verses 28 through 44. In our next audio, we'll take up John 11:45 through 54, which I've entitled, The Consequences of Lazarus' Resurrection. What did the Pharisees think about this? What did the disciples think? And so forth. We'll do that next audio. Hope you listened to that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 